A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Again, Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with my staff, the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Then Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for, the, for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he had said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he had encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. As Jethro rejoiced, rejo- and Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to inquire of God. 
When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and the laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall, dis- they shall bring to you. But any small matter, they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any matter, small matter, they decided for themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. It is good. There we go. Good morning, Rogers Park. It's good to be with you this morning. We're in a series working through the book of Exodus. Thank you, Shiloh, for reading to us. Let's pray before we start. God, we thank you that we can come and gather as the church this morning as your people. God, we thank you for your word. So God, today, would you speak into our hearts? God, we come um, seeking you, needing you. So God, we come expectant. God, your word is alive. It speaks by your spirit in your name. Amen. Like I said, we're working through a series uh, through the book of Exodus. We've been there a number of weeks. If we haven't met, my name's Phil Adams. I'm one of the, the pastors here at the church. And if you've been here previous weeks, you'll have seen that Israel as a nation have moved from slavery in Egypt out into the wilderness. 
Ever since Israel have left Egypt, there has been this, this rhythm that we've seen in the previous chapters in the previous weeks from chapter 15 to where we are today and what Shiloh read. And the rhythm has been hard. The rhythm that Israel have had to go through has been hard. It's been difficult. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today. Hardship. Struggle in our lives. When, when Moses writes about Israel's hardships, they, they flow from one into the other. They came out of Egypt. They get pinned against the Red Sea, if you remember that. They could see the Egyptians coming towards them. They maybe see the sand in the desert up in the air. And they know that Egypt is coming. They're going to take them back into slavery. They feel sick in their stomachs until God parts the Red Sea and they, God makes a way through for them. Then they celebrate, but immediately then in verse 22 of chapter 15, they went three days into the wilderness and they find no water. I started writing this sermon in a coffee shop and I went in early in the morning and they said the coffee machine wasn't working. I said, no problem, I can wait. Bad idea. Ten minutes later, I start glancing up at the barista. Maybe I should leave. What's going on? I was waiting 10 minutes for coffee. These guys, Israel, have been three days without water. Then God turns a, a, a pool of bitter water sweet and breathe water. But then again, we bounce straight into chapter 16 where they grumble against Moses because they see no way that they're going to be able to feed themselves and sustain themselves. And correct, they should not have turned on Moses and they most definitely should not have turned on God who just freed them from Egypt. But hunger is the real deal. The merging of hunger and anger. Don't mess with us when we're hungry, am I right? Amen. Then God started to provide bread for them every morning and breathe. Then we jump straight into chapter 17. And Israel are now camped at this place called Rephidim. And it says there was no water for them to drink again. This time they pretty much lose it. As Jimmy shared last week, they practically attack Moses. Like I almost attacked a barista not bringing me coffee in the morning. But hopefully no barista has ever cried out to God the way Moses cried out to God. He said, what will I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. <sighs> then Moses receives instructions from God to strike the rock and the water flows. Hallelujah. And breathe. Then we get to our passage this morning and it opens up with this. Then the Amalekites came and they fought with, with Israel at Rephidim. That's where Israel almost attacked Moses because of the lack of water. And now the Amalekites are attacking Israel in the same place. Drama, drama, drama. Ever since Israel left Egypt, it's been hard. It's been relentless. Hardship flowing into hardship. And in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, we get a fuller introduction as to how this attack on Israel started. Deuteronomy 25 says this, Moses says this to Israel, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary, and when you were worn out, they met you on your journey, and they attacked all who were lagging behind. 
what we read in Deuteronomy is that the Amalekites ignore all kinds of rules of engagement and rules of war, and without warning, they attack Israel from behind, picking off the weak, picking off the weary. We've been pinned to the Red Sea. We've been stuck in the wilderness, lacking food, lacking water, and now we're randomly and mercilessly attacked without warning. This is exhausting. This is hard. Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with the Amalekites, which hints at the fact that Israel didn't even really have an army, trained army at this point. Joshua goes to find men he thinks could fight. Then Moses says, and tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Remember this staff. This staff has been one of the main characters throughout Exodus. Throughout this series, it was used to display God's power to Pharaoh by turning, for the staff turning into a snake. It was used in judgment to turn the river Nile to blood, as well as a number of the other plagues against Egypt. Then last week, it was used to strike the rock through which water then flowed out. And now we read in verse 10 that Joshua, an emerging leader in Israel, he goes out to try and pull together an army to fight against the Amalekites who have attacked them, attacked their weak, and attacked their vulnerable, while Moses goes to the top of a nearby mountain with the staff in his hand. Then verse 11 says that on the top of that mountain, when Moses lifted up the staff, the Israelites would push forward and overcome the Amalekites. But then when Moses' arms would tire and lower, the staff would come down and the Amalekites would begin to push forward and overcome Israel. Keep them up, Moses. Keep them up. Verse 12 tells us what happens next. But Moses' hands, they grew weary. Deuteronomy 25 told us that Israel were already weary when the Amalekites attacked them without warning. And now Moses' arms are weary as well. This is exhausting. This is hard. Aaron, Moses' brother, and someone called her go, and they get a stone for Moses, and they place it behind him. They get him to sit down, and then one of them goes to either side. They take his arms, and they hold them up because he couldn't. And then, only then, does Israel win. I think there's something in us all that makes us question whether we should admit that we're struggling. Maybe we we don't want to seem weak. Maybe we've been hurt in the past when we've opened up and been vulnerable. Maybe we don't want to look like we don't have it all under control. So correct me if I'm wrong, but we put on a facade of strength. We put on a face that tells people around us that we're okay, even if we're not. Maybe being single is just hard. You feel lonely and you're tired of it. Maybe you want kids and it isn't happening. Maybe you've moved from one job to another and you're still not quite where you want to be. Maybe your finances are a mess and you feel like you're sinking. Maybe for whatever reason you feel like you don't belong. Chicago is not home. America is not home. 
Maybe you wake up in the morning and the pressures of life are overwhelming and you just want to pull the covers back over your head. You're here this morning and it's hard and it's been hard for a while. I think this is how Israel would have been feeling at this point. We've been pinned against the Red Sea. We've been stuck in the wilderness without food and without water. And now we're randomly being attacked without warming. warning. This is exhausting, hard. And then we get to chapter 18. And who turns up at Moses' door? His father-in-law. This could go either way. It could go either way. <laughs> Jethro's father-in-law, or Moses' father-in-law called Jethro is introduced as the priest of Midian, which is even a little more concerning. Moses' father-in-law is not a follower of Yahweh. He is not a believer in God. He is a pagan priest to a nomadic people called the Midianites who are idol worshipers. But he has heard about what God has done in delivering Israel from Egypt. And we can see from verse 7 that Moses highly respects Jethro, highly respects his father-in-law. It says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and he kissed him. Then it says that they asked each other how they're doing. And then they went into the tent to catch up. And then something incredible happens. Jethro goes into the tent as a Midian priest. He goes into the tent as an idolater. And then he comes out rejoicing. In verse 11, it says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all false gods. Jethro goes into the tent as an idol worshiper, and he comes out rejoicing that the God of Moses is greater than all false gods. What happened? What happened in the tent? Jethro already knew about God delivering Israel from Egypt. So what did Moses say? What did Moses tell him? Eugene Peterson, his pastor, just passed away last year. He, he has a book called A Contemplative Pastor. And he writes about placing time bombs in people's hearts. Placing time bombs in people's hearts. And what he's talking about in this book is how Jesus told parables. He says that when Jesus told parables, they were ordinary stories of ordinary lives. Stories about soil and seeds, meals and coins and sheep, bandits and victims, farmers and merchants. But the ordinariness would have relaxed people's defenses. People would have walked away from Jesus perplexed, wondering what he meant with the stories lodged in their imagination. And then Eugene Peterson writes, Then, like a time bomb, the story would explode in their unprotected hearts. An abyss would open up at their very feet. He was talking about God. The only God. Greater than all other gods. This week I was studying for this sermon and literally while thinking through what I'm saying, right now I got a call from someone and they asked me if I would go with them to the community resources center up on Morse. They wanted to see if they could get some help with, with housing. 
So we go into the, the office and this really light, nice lady starts asking the family questions to hear and understand their story about their, their struggles in their home country, how they got to America, the situation with their kids, their health issues, the trauma that they've been through. And it's hard. And it's, it's hard to listen to. It's been hard. It is hard. And then towards the end, the lady says something simple to the family. She, she just said, I will give you a call in a couple of weeks to follow up, to which one of the family members gives a smile and says, ah, thank you, praise God, praise God. So I took them home. And I went to Starbucks down on Peterson, and I sat down, went back to preparing for today, and I asked, so, so what happened in the tent? What happened to turn Jethro, a Midian priest, into a rejoicing follower of God? Verse 8 tells us. It's right there. Verse 8 says that Moses told his father-in-law Jethro all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. He told, Pharaoh, he told Jethro all about the hardships they had come through. And how the Lord had delivered them. And then Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. I didn't really get this when I first studied this verse. Like I, like I got it cognitively in my head. But then when I seen just a little glimpse of it happening in the community resource center, then I got it. When I seen this family's hardships, and then I seen them continue, continuing to praise God, I got it. Moses sat down in a little office up on Morse. He pulled up a chair with Jethro, and he told his story. Moses talked about the hard stuff. Moses talked about his struggles and his pain, and then said, but Jethro, praise God. Still, Jethro, praise God. Rogers Park, very simple this morning. And this sermon's just going to go around in circles. Very simply this morning, what I want to remind you, even though you would never choose hardship, someday, maybe tomorrow, maybe this week, someone is going to walk into your life and they're going to pull up a chair when you're tired, when you're confused, and your arms are weak, and you're going to tell them it's hard, it's been hard, it's still hard, but through it all, God is sustaining me and helping me, and it's only God's love and God's grace that are keeping me going. And through your weakness, their eyes will somehow be open to see not just the bad in your life, but the good. And in the good, they will see God because they will see that in the good in your life, it is God. I know Moses would never have asked to get pinned against the Red Sea or run out of bread and, and water. I'm definitely sure he wouldn't have asked to be swarmed from behind by the Amalekites and his arms are still so sore from trying to hold up that staff. But God had given Moses a story to tell. And his story was a tool to use. 
for pointing to God as his sustainer and his deliverer. So are you telling your story? Are we telling our story? Let's zoom out and take a, a bigger look at the, the picture as to what's happening here because there's, there's multiple layers to the text Shal read to us this morning. If we, if we think of Israel's freedom from Egypt and journey to the promised land in, in stages, we are about to enter a new stage. Officially, it'll be next week when Jamie's here. It'll be a new season, a new stage in their progression out of Egypt. Back in Exodus 3, God is speaking to Moses at the burning bush. If you remember that, God tells Moses that he will lead Israel to the promised land. But God also tells Moses that on the way to the promised land, he will lead Israel to Mount Sinai. And this is where they arrive in in chapter 19. Shortly after Jethro accepts God as the one true God, and from chapter 19, verse 1, we can work out that it's been exactly three months since the people of Israel left Egypt. They have walked through the wilderness for three months, facing these hardships that we've mentioned, all packed into those three months, and now they arrive at Mount Sinai, where they're going to stay for the next ten months. And they're going to be here for a very, very, very special reason. It's here that God is going to give Israel the law. God has freed Israel. Now he's going to instruct them as to how they should live. He's going to create in them something unique, a unique culture, a unique way of life through the laws and the celebrations and the traditions that they will keep. And remember, this is all going back to what we keep mentioning in previous weeks. God is creating for himself a people. He's creating for himself a nation. Israel have grown from the family tree of one man, Abraham, whose extended family entered Egypt 400 years ago as 70 families, and now they have grown to over 2 million people. And back when God was promising to Abraham that his family would become a great people, God points out the reason, the rationale for Israel's existence in the first place. Genesis 12, verse 1, Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God was choosing and extending Abraham's family so that through them the world would be blessed. You've heard it before. You're going to hear it again. So now in Exodus chapter 19, generations later, God's promise is being fulfilled. Israel is now standing before Mount Sinai, over two million people, and God reiterates to the whole of Israel the essence of what he said generations ago to Abraham. In Exodus 19, verse 5, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation." Stick with me here, because when God says to Israel they are a treasured possession, he's telling them that they have been chosen from amongst all nations. But Israel being chosen, listen to this, Israel being chosen does not cut them off from the surrounding nations as some elite people group. Rather, God having chosen them actually situates them, situates Israel in a very specific relationship with the surrounding nations. 
as we read, Israel are to be in relationship with the surrounding neighborhood, the surrounding nations as a kingdom of priests. And what the priests do. Some of us thought a little bit about this on Wednesday night at the small group leader training. What priests do in the biblical sense is they represent and identify with the people God has placed them amongst. They represent and they identify with the people God has placed them amongst. And they mediate between the people and God. They are to stand amongst, with, beside people, and then point people to God. They are to stand with, beside, amongst people, and then point people to God. And the placement of these verses is so important because as God calls Israel a kingdom of priests who stand amongst, with, beside the surrounding nations, God is about to give Moses the law that Israel is to follow. Jamie's going to look at this further next week, but for now, the law is what is going to make Israel distinct from all other people. They are to stand with, beside, amongst the surrounding nations, but the law is going to make them distinct. They are to be normal, normal, relatable as a nation, but a different version of the nations that surround them. By being a holy nation. And this unique culture and these behaviors, Israel's unique celebrations and traditions are to be an example of right relationship with God. For the sake of drawing the attention of those that are around them, causing people to ask, who are you guys? What makes you guys live that way and think that way? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5, Moses says, See, I have taught you the statutes, I taught you the rules as the Lord God commanded me to do, that you should do them in the land that you are to enter and take possession of it. Keep them and do them, the laws, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight, in the sight of the peoples who will say, Surely this is a great nation. It is wise and it is understanding. Israel's behavior, culture, traditions were to draw people in so they could point to God and say, he's the author of it all. He's our guide. He's our king. He's our salvation. He's our deliverer. He's our hope. But you know what? We're also going to just look so much better than everybody else. (laughs) we're going to set the bar. We're going to set the moral standard. We're going to be the sensible, the civil middle with high family values, tough on crime, strong belief in justice, a light to the nations, let's do it. We are going to shine so bright like headlights on full beam right in their faces. Take a look at our latest promo. We are currently engaged at 17 initiatives around the world, both locally and globally. Yep, that's all us. Hey, come to our church. We are one big happy family. We grieve slavery in America. 
and have figured out how to perfectly parse our words so we can talk about it and keep everyone happy. We've got all sides covered. We're so good. Hey, come to our apologetics event. We promise to remove every doubt you've ever had about God. If a doubt returns within 10 days, money back guaranteed. Any minute now, the world will be flocking to us to understand how we got so darn smart and credible. It's only a matter of time. We're going to wow the world with our preaching and our music and our programs. And remember, guys, when they get here, we'll tell them it's all a God thing. He makes us awesome. God's intention for Israel was perfect. God's intention for Israel was perfect. God's intention for the church is perfect. Let them see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. God's intention for the church is perfect. But what if we aren't? What if at times our good works aren't that good? What if we go to shine full beam and the bulb blows? Or maybe applicable to us as the church in America, what if at times our good works just drip with pride? What then? And please don't hear me wrong. There are beautiful things about the church. Beautiful things about the church in America and all around the world. Good works now through history that bring glory to God and they share the love of God and reveal the love of God to the world. The church is the bride of Christ. But the bride is also an adulterer. And I know that strong language. But the church has seen some scandals over the years. Scandals that have been seen and are still seen and are still being felt. And missionally, I don't know how to talk about this without saying no parsing of words can gloss over our sin. It's just there. So what if at times our good works aren't that good? What if we go to put on our headlights full beam and the bulb blows? Ah, don't say that. Don't bring that stuff up. That will make us look bad. How will anyone ever know God if they see our failures? The world needs to see light. We got to look good. Just keep shining. How will anyone be drawn to God? How will anyone see God in us if they see our failures, if we're broken? Surely we have to hide our failures and our brokenness. Surely we have to scrub up clean for church. We need to brand ourselves real nice and glossy. Who will ever want to be like us if we aren't smiling, if we haven't got our face on? What would even happen if we were just honest? Maybe, maybe the same thing that happened when Moses was just honest. The beautiful, the beautiful, the beautiful, somebody say beautiful, thing is that Israel have already had their first convert. 
Jethro. Jethro was the priest of Midian. He was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He was from the surrounding nations. He came to see his son-in-law. And what did Moses do? He welcomed, welcomed him. He brought him into his tent. He sat with him, and he related to him. And what I want us to see is how Moses pointed Jethro to God. What did Moses tell Jethro about? He told him it's been hard. He told him it's been hard. And at times we've failed. Singleness has been hard. Shame is hard. Infertility has been hard. Depression has been hard. Missing home has been hard. Believing has been hard. Marriage has been hard. Forgiveness is hard. Temptation is hard. The job search is hard. Humility is hard. Jethro, it's been hard. First, there was the Red Sea. And God had led us by a pillar of fire above our heads. But when we got to the water and couldn't see where to go to next, we were scared. When we ran out of water and food, we got angry, Jethro. Some of us even thought about going back into slavery. Some of us even thought about attacking me. And we are just finished fighting against the Amalekites. We're weary. We're worn out. They took advantage of us. We've been scared, we've been angry, we're weary and worn out. What do you mean, Moses? You, you weren't fit enough to swim across the Red Sea? What do you mean, you, you weren't smart enough to remember you might need to bring food and water into a desert? What do you mean, you, you grumble just after being freed from Egypt? <laughs> Moses, son... You sound a lot like us Midianites. Sounds like some of the tricky spots that we've got ourselves into over the years. No, but we at Jethro, I'm not finished. That's not the end of the story because Jethro, the best bit's still coming. God delivered us every time. God delivered us at every stage. God delivered us. He parted that Red Sea. He was patient when we grumbled. Jethro, he feeds me when I'm hungry. Jethro, he's water when I'm thirsty. He beat the Amalekites. I couldn't even hold up my arms. God delivers, Jethro. Jethro, God delivers because he's delivered me. And what did Jethro do? Rejoiced. Why? Because if there was a hope for screw-ups like Israel, there might be hope for him and his people. Rogers Park, always before the church's story is its story of triumph, it's a story of deliverance. Don't forget that. Our humility depends on remembering that. Always before the church's story is a story of triumph, it's a story of deliverance. Our story is a story of weariness, brokenness, sinfulness, but grace. 
all we've got to wow people with is grace. He feeds me when I'm hungry. He's water when I'm thirsty. He's patient when I'm slow. He finds me when I'm doubting. He's strong when I'm weak. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, we can read the famous story of Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. He tells Jesus, I will do anything for you. I will even die for you. And then once Jesus is arrested, Peter gets scared. And he denies Jesus three times. I never knew him. I never knew him. I never knew him. I didn't know him. Richard Bauckham, a historian and theologian, he claims that the only plausible way that we know about the details of these denials is if Peter personally shared them with people. How else would we know? But since he did share... We know Jesus finding him post-resurrection and having breakfast with him on the beach was much more than breakfast. It was grace. It was forgiveness. This week, we're starting our soccer camp at Potawatomi Park. Every every Wednesday night for the next four weeks. 6 p.m., 7 p.m. Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, starting Potawatomi Park. We're going to be there playing soccer, teaching soccer, if you know how to teach, but also just mingling in, talking to people in the neighborhood. There's going to be hundreds of people there. I hope there will be some form of food, but we will be there engaging with, belonging amongst our neighborhood. Come, all of you. Even if you can't play soccer, come meet people, chat to people in our neighborhood. Come have fun, make friends. This is the chance not just to sit and hear what's preached. It's an opportunity to go and do what's preached. Wednesday night, 6 p.m., Potawatomi Park for the next four weeks. Here's some advice from C.S. Lewis. Friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, What, you two? I thought that was only me. Here's another piece of advice for Wednesday night from a guy called Gary Comer. He says, when people, when meeting new people, one of my rules of thumb is to make sure the unbeliever knows that I think they are better than I am. Maybe Wednesday night. When we are with, beside, amongst our neighbors, someone is going to walk into your life and pull up a chair and you're tired. And you're confused and weak and you're going to tell them it's hard. It's been hard. It's still hard. But through it all, God is sustaining me and helping me. And it's only God's love and grace that are keeping me going. And maybe... Through your weakness, their eyes will be open to see not the bad in your life, but the good. And in the good, they will see God. Because they will see that the good in your life is God. God has given you a story to tell. And your story is your tool to wow people with God's grace. Mother Teresa said, Honesty and transparency make you vulnerable, but be honest and transparent anyway. Are you telling your story? Are we honestly telling our story? 
See you on Wednesday night, 6 p.m., Potawatomi Park. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your grace in your word. God, we thank you that we don't have to figure this all out by ourselves, but we can read about Peter. We can read that he failed, that he screwed up, and yet, God, you were gracious. And God, that's the gospel. That's the story we got to tell. That's what we want people to understand that has happened in our lives, that we are broken, we are messy, we are sinful, and yet God's grace delivered us. God, sink that deep into our bones. May we proclaim it, God, amongst, with, beside our neighborhood. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come to communion. Let me read Matthew chapter 26, 36 to 39. This is ours before Jesus was crucified. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he, he said to them, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. He took Peter Sorry. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, if it is at all possible, make this cup be taken away from me. Yet not as I will, but your will be done. Luke 22 says, being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood down to the ground. At the cross, we see that Jesus can sympathize with us. He knows it's hard. He knows our weakness. He knows because he paid the price for our deliverance. He paid with his life what we owed. He took our place so that we could go free. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is who we need. Jesus offers what we need. He's our deliverer. Before our story is triumph, our story is deliverance. And if you're ready today to bow the knee and give your life to Christ, join us. Join us as we take the bread and we tip it in the cup to remember our only hope. May he also be yours from today forward. Let's pray. God, we bow before the cross. And God, we see that our sin was what kept you hanging on that cross. You were there to take our sin so that we could go free. You bore the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might be delivered and welcomed into your family. God, you crushed, you defeated the root of all sin so that one day this world will be transformed and made new and we will see your face and all things will be right. God, we thank you that we have a message to declare that beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In Jesus' name, amen.